Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this week's episode, Roger is joined by Peter Baker, the chief White House correspondent for The New York Times. Peter has covered Presidents Donald J. Trump and Barack Obama for The Times and Presidents Bill Clinton and George W. Bush at The Washington Post. He also co-authored the Post's original story breaking the Ken Starr investigation of the Monica Lewinsky scandal. He's also the author or co-author of six books, the most recent of which is titled The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James A. Baker II, which tells the story of Secretary Baker, who served in a number of roles during the Reagan administration, including as President Reagan's chief of staff and as Secretary of the Treasury. Peter and Roger discuss a bygone era where politics worked in Washington and the political operator who helped bring Reagan's vision of government to life. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Thanks for listening. Peter Baker, welcome to the show. Uh, you and Susan Glasser are the authors of The Man Who Ran Washington, The Life and Times of James Baker III. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Now, uh, this is a fantastic book, a real volume, uh, but a page turner, certainly for the Washington Insider. Uh, and of course, it's, it's featuring James Baker, most uh, well-known as his time as Secretary of State to Bush 41, George H.W. Bush. Uh, but of course, he had an amazing story uh, from the time he entered Washington to the time he ascended to Secretary of State. He spent a lot of time with Secretary Baker, 70 hours. Give us a sense of the man that you got to know as you researched this book. Right. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me today. It's great to see you. Great to be part of this. And thank you for the audience participating. I'm sorry, Susan can't make it today, but uh, uh, I'll try to talk twice as much. Um, <laughs> we did. We, we spent seven years on this book. And, and as you say, did 70 hours of interviews with Secretary Baker, as well as interviewing uh, former presidents, both President Bush, including President 41 before he passed, President Carter, Secretaries of State like Condoleezza Rice and, and uh, Henry Kissinger and, and so forth, and vice presidents like Dick Cheney and Dan Quayle, but also, interestingly, his wife, his eight children, his nanny, who at 107 is still alive today and going strong. So we had a chance to uh, insert, uh, to, 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 to explore his life in a, in a full way, right? I think a lot of us know who Jim Baker was because of his sterling resume, because of his accomplishments, but for us, it was a chance to not only revisit an era in Washington that does seem very different today, but also to explore his life uh, prior to politics, as well as, uh, you know, on the sidelines while he was, you know, helping to run Washington. And he's a remarkably interesting guy at age 90 today. He is still as sharp as can be. Uh, we should all be so lucky. He um, uh, He's a Texan through and through, but he's one of these people, I think, who manages to, to, to work any kind of room, right? You know, he could, he'll be in a duck blind with, with Dick Cheney one day and he could be in Washington, you know, with the poobahs of the Capitol the next day. You know, Lauren Craner, who passed away recently, 
said that he would be with him on Capitol Hill and go with him to see Jesse, uh, Jesse Helms. And they would talk, you know, uh, hunting and so forth. Right, and then there's a former who, kind of uh, Republican from North Carolina. Exactly. Who, yeah, right. Sort of cantankerous, kind of yeah. conservative, you know, good old boy. And then you go next door to Chris Dodd, you know, sort of the patrician New Englander, and they talk opera or whatever. And so that's what, that's what Baker is like. He manages, to, I think, to fit any kind of room or any kind of, you know, uh, role that he needed to play in order to get what he needed to get done. Yeah, he's a bit of a chameleon figure, is really what comes out. Uh, but uh, using that in a very strategic fashion, yeah. you mentioned um, uh, the work you did uh, here, really getting to know the man in the personal life. One of the undercurrents in the book is, uh, I guess, twofold. One, he had this Brady Bunch-like family. He had this tragedy where he lost his, his first wife and then uh, remarries someone who was in a family friendship circle and brings these two families together with lots of kids as his career is rising. Um, that's interesting in its own right, how you manage that. And then at the same time, he's really not someone who brings his personal life into his professional life. Uh, uh, you had quotes here, I think, for people like Dennis Ross or Bob Zellick, uh, really the trusted Baker crew that you know goes from the White House to the State Department with him. But they only got so close. Right, right. They called him Mr. Baker. They always called him Mr. Baker or Mr. Secretary or what have you. They didn't call him Jim. And he didn't invite them to call him Jim. And you're right, Bob Zellick told us, he said, I, I worked for him for years, but I think he even knew my wife's name, right? He didn't, he didn't delve into other people's personal lives and he didn't reveal much about his own. And so actually doing this book, actually, I think for us was a great opportunity because he was actually pretty open with us. Now, yeah. he's not an especially introspective guy. He doesn't want to lie down on the couch and you know, explore his psyche with uh, you know, reporters coming in, authors coming in. But he was willing to talk about anything. He didn't put anything off limits, including the very difficult struggles of his family, including his first wife's death, including the struggles his children had coming to terms with that, of drugs and, 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 and troubles in school and so forth. And, and he was very open about it. I, I thought that was something that we had not ever seen really in Jim Baker in a public way, maybe in retirement. He's more open and, and willing to talk about it than he had been in, in office. Yeah, certainly something that wasn't known. Uh, the, the one place where you really saw this personal connection throughout the story is the figure of George H.W. Bush. Of course, this book uh, was published and came out not long after George H.W. Bush passed. There was a lot of coverage over how uh, Secretary Baker was at the bedside of President Bush, uh, massaging his feet. I mean, this real personal uh, kind of uh, connection and compassion right. and emotion. Was that the most emotional you ever saw Secretary Baker in, in, in discussing the relationship with H.W. Bush? Yeah, I know he cried, I think, at the uh, cathedral during the, the funeral service. I don't think anybody had ever seen Jim Baker cry in public. The only time I can think of that he ever was known to be emotional in public was the day he left the State Department in 1992. He, it had meant so much to be Secretary of State he didn't want to go back to the White House to run that campaign, so he was emotional that day. And other than that, basically, it was this day when he lost his best friend. And it's such a unique relationship, right? Think about this. I don't think Mike Pompeo is going to be rubbing Donald Trump's feet on his deathbed. <laughs> and I don't mean that disrespectfully. It would be surprising, I think. Yeah, I don't think John Kerry is going to be rubbing Barack Obama's feet on his deathbed. I mean, the, most presidents and secretaries of state are political allies or sometimes political rivals, right? I mean. Barack Obama picked Hillary Clinton. They would have been rivals. So you do that to knit up the party or you do that to right. find some, 
you know, tool in a Secretary of State that you don't have. This was different. They, they were friends, Jim Baker and George Bush, long before politics. They were friends from the Houston Country Club tennis courts, very competitive, uh, but doubles partners and won two years in a row, which they will both tell you about ad nauseum if you let them. Uh, and it mattered that they were friends before becoming uh, political partners as well. And George Bush was the one person that Jim Baker confided in when his wife's diagnosis was terminal. The one person he tells, and we have a letter that he writes to George Bush telling him this. He didn't even tell his wife. Matt, you and I oh. as modern, modern husbands know that's kind of right. verboten today, but in 1969, that was a little bit more uh, common. And he thought he was sparing her. Of course she knew. But the point is that the friendship with Bush uh, transcended politics in a way that I don't think any American president and secretary of state have had probably since Jefferson and Madison. It, it's, it seems unprecedented and it is, it is quite a compelling story. Of course, it was Baker's personal tragedy, uh, the loss of his first wife, as you just referenced, that actually is part of why George H.W. Bush invited Baker to be part of his political operation and ambition and, and leave the practice of law. Just give us a little color on how it all started there. And it was H.W. Bush that brought him in. Right, it's exactly right. Now, Baker had begun to get restless a little bit. He had done the corporate law thing and it, I think it had lost interest for him. So he's already starting to be interested in politics, but it's really after uh, Mary Stewart Baker dies, his first wife, that George H.W. Bush says, look, you know, you got to, you know, you got to get out of this morning. You've got to, you know, do something new. Why don't you come work with me on my Senate campaign? He's running for Senate in 1970 uh, against uh, Lloyd Benson uh, and run Harris County for me. Harris County being, of course, the home of Houston. And Baker says, well, I got just two problems with that. One is I don't know anything about politics. And two, I'm a Democrat. <laughs> and, and Bush says, well, we can take care of that second one. And <laughs> Sure enough, Baker switches parties and he dives into this campaign. And it's a real open uh, eye opener for him, right? There's a whole other world of things that he had never really been involved in before. And while they lost that Senate campaign, they won Harris County. And it was the beginning of Baker's real involvement in it. You're right. And then Bush helps bring him to Washington where he gets an appointment at the Commerce Department of all places at age 45. Yeah, I mean, so he's, like, he's, he's, I was just about to go there. Um, there's so much that's compelling about the story, stuff we've discussed, we'll talk about his years in the Reagan administration and, and then time as Secretary of State. But to be in your mid-40s with zero political, political experience minus this one Senate race, right. all of a sudden find yourself as Undersecretary of Commerce, which as you point out in the book, essentially meant he was the number two person in the Department of Commerce. And then to go ahead and convert that where in 1976, he's front and center as a person responsible for winning the convention for President Ford, which was contested by Ronald Reagan. Give us the highlights of how does that happen? It's a huge part of, of the story that this outsider with zero experience takes over Washington, 45 years old. It's really remarkable. It really is. And you're right. Uh, it, it, it's a confluence of different circumstances. One, of course, it's the it's the neutron bomb of Watergate that wipes out a whole generation of Republican operatives because of the scandal. And suddenly there's a void where a person like a Jim Baker can suddenly come in, where a person like Dick Cheney, the young 30-something chief of staff to the new president, Gerald Ford, can suddenly become a major player. And Dick Cheney ended up 
meeting and liking Jim Baker and thinking this guy is pretty good. He's pretty sharp. We're going to move him from commerce over here. And, and, and so again, a series of unusual circumstances, Gerald Ford's political, uh, longtime political guy who was going to be running the delegate contest at the convention against Reagan dies in a car accident. And so Baker gets put into that slot out of nowhere and he, and he performs, right? I mean, obviously, you know, happenstance and accident are one thing you have to then take advantage of those opportunities when they're presented and, and demonstrate that you can. And he turned out to be a natural at it. He turned out to be a real instinctive delegate hunting kind of politician. He goes to the, to the, to the convention and he helps beat back Reagan the last time Reagan loses anything. Uh, and it's so close. And basically Reagan could have easily taken that from Ford. So Baker gets the nickname, the miracle man. That's what they called him on the walkie talkies at the convention in Kansas city. Uh, because he manages to pull it off. And he learns a couple of things from this. One, you know, the care and feeding of political egos, right? All these delegates who wanted something. And he tried to give them what, they, what he could give them without giving them, crossing a line he thought was ethically uh, untenable. And the second thing is, you know, deal straight up with the press. Don't lie about your delegate counts. And he felt like John Sears had done that. And John Sears, who was- Running the Reagan campaign. Manager, running the Reagan campaign. Had lost credibility because he inflated delegate counts or what have you. And because Baker's counts always turned out to be pretty accurate, he gained credibility with the press corps, which he thought was always important to him and to his success. And so from that, suddenly a whole new star arises on the political horizon. So I want to follow up on a couple of threads in, in, in that last uh, response. The press and an approach to the press and recognizing kind of the importance and the power of the press really figures throughout the entire story of Jim Baker. Um, you can call it strategic, you can call it a serial leaker. Um, mm -hmm. Give us a little color on Baker and the press and how he used it both in, in 76, they began to trust him in contrast to, as you point out, Sears, but then, you know, in, in 1980, and then when he becomes chief of staff, uh, this is a big part uh, of kind of his toolkit, you know, the, the right. arrow in his quiver that he he yields more effectively than, than perhaps anybody else in Washington. I think that's right, especially his time of chief of staff to Reagan. His, his use of the press, his manipulation, you want to say, his courting of the press, whatever word you want to use, is part of his toolkit. That's a great way to put it. Because he represents, he understands that, you know, a lot of Republicans look suspiciously at the press and he thought, look, these reporters are probably more liberal probably didn't vote for Reagan, but he also understood that you could work with them, right? And that if you were straight up with them, they're just after a story. And that and if you help them get a story, it's gonna rebound to your benefit. It's not to like every story. You're gonna be mad at some things, but broadly speaking, it will work to your benefit. And that's something I always am stunned that people in Washington, Democrats and Republicans sometimes don't get. You know, the smart ones do, that the press can be your, you know, is, is a tool. And if you work with them in a straight up way, you're going to be better off. Now, it didn't mean he told us everything. It didn't mean he was always 100%, you know, candid. And he was not on the record a lot of the time, right? And so a lot of people resented him for it. They said that he was using the press to take out his rivals in the White House, like Ed Meese, and that they blamed him for uh, promoting himself. Uh, sometimes they felt at the expense of Reagan. But I think broadly speaking, you could say that he understood the press was a tool of power and that he used it from his point of view to advance Reagan's agenda. Um, I want to go back in a, in a minute to uh, the Troika, the so-called Troika yeah. and, and Baker uh, kind of transitioning from 1980 running the Bush campaign to becoming chief of staff. So that's a whole 
really important nugget. But since we start discussing the press, I want to fast forward a bit, like to today. And mm -hmm. a lot of what this book does is, is really shows contrast, uh, makes you feel like there was this bygone era and, and, and things that somehow we wish we can recover, bipartisan agreements on major policy matters is another example. But with the press, you know, the language of the last administration was enemy of the people, you know, uh, the press has changed so dramatically. Uh, it's no longer the New York Times and the Washington Post or maybe the Wall Street Journal. Those are, those are three inputs that, you know, amongst many others and everyone's within their own echo chamber. So thought exercise here. Yeah. Um, Jim Baker as a chief of staff in 2021, mm. that tool in his toolkit, probably less effective driving a couple of stories in the journal or at the times or in the post isn't necessarily going to win the day right well i think it's a good point you're right the media environment when he was chief of staff and even secretary of state was so different than it is today because it was a smaller group of organizations there was a more um you know manageable in that sense uh kind of center right three networks a handful of papers the wire services and the news magazines and he had a policy he would go he would not go home before returning every reporter's phone call that it made made to him that day now they didn't have cell phones back then so sometimes he called back late enough knowing that they wouldn't still be at their office but he did return the calls and he knew that on fridays he would have the news magazines in to talk and give them some insider bit because he knew that was their deadline for the weekend magazines and at six o'clock if sam donaldson called from ABC, he knew Sam was about to go on the air and he'd think of something fresh he could give Sam that would seem like a scoop and that would be good. Today, the app, the environment is so fragmented. You've got so many more outlets and they're and they're and they're and they're they're more ideological, a lot of them, right? Obviously, MSNBC, Fox News, Huffington Post, the Daily Caller. There's such a proliferation of places that um, cover Washington now, and from a genuinely generally more uh, overtly political angle right now people can say well the washington post in new york times cbs they're all liberal well they're not intended to be right our editorial pages tend to be but our news reporters at least aspire not to be and that's a difference between that you know uh, some of the things you see in the evening on fox news or msnbc or or in some of these other publications and so baker would have a very different environment today i still think he's skilled enough that he would have figured it out how best to use it right he on social media he would have had he would have owned twitter yeah, it's funny because he doesn't have an email even today, right? Even today, he doesn't use email. His wife prints them out and gives them to him. He doesn't, so he's not a techno guy today. But had he been in his prime today, I think he would have figured it out. So let's go back uh, to 1980. Uh, of course, 1978, he has a, a failed run uh, as attorney general. I shouldn't say, of course. I don't think most people know that. I didn't know that until I, I read the book, but that's what happened. And then uh, at pivots from losing that statewide um, race for attorney general in Texas to take up uh, running George H.W. Bush's presidential campaign, uh, which uh, I think you referenced is, is an asterisk. I mean, it's not polling well. Uh, but of course, H.W. gets out there and, and it's a race between Reagan and H.W. Bush. And this is a fierce competitive battle. Uh, and Baker figures prominently in two parts, at least. One, making it a race, but two, advising his friend to pull out of the race. Comment on both those moments. Yeah, and this is where friendship is so different than in a lot of political circumstances, right? Jim, the most important thing Jim Baker does, I think, is to get George Bush to drop out. 
He helps get him th through, you know, the primaries. He does make him the primary, the, 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 the number one uh, challenger in effect to Reagan out of a field of people who would like to be wins the Iowa caucus. They have the big Mo as George H.W. Bush called it. Momentum. Momentum. Yes, he was yes. the last man standing against Reagan, who was so popular in the party at that point that I think that Bush had built up a lot of credibility, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, stature as a result of this. But Baker understood how far you could take it and when it was time to fold. And he knew that they didn't have enough money to go further. They, he knew they weren't going to be able to catch up on delegates. And he knew that the next stage of the plan, at least from Baker's point of view, was how do you get Bush on the ticket? And if you go too long, if you, if you keep pushing Reagan longer than, than it seems viable, then you're going to alienate him, you're going to alienate his people, and you'll lose your chance to, to, to be his running mate. And it comes very close that, to doing it. At that crossroad between you know, trying to be a winner versus only being seen as a spoiler. Exactly. And, and this exactly. is another undercurrent here where suspicions rise, right? And of right. course, what happens next only reinforces perhaps those seeds of suspicion at this time. But who was benefiting most from H.W. Uh, Bush pulling out of the race? Now, it worked. He, be he gets on the ticket and then ultimately becomes president after uh, two terms of, of, of Ronald Reagan. But it also resulted in Ronald Reagan selecting Jim Baker as his chief of staff. Give us a little uh, color and, and, and the story of how uh, those two tracks develop. Baker yeah. becomes kind of this trusted advisor and chief of staff to President to Reagan or President-elect Reagan. And then you have H.W. Bush, of course, beforehand, but be becoming uh, the vice president. Right. Well, Baker, has, <clears throat> Baker sort of forces Bush to face the reality to get out. He does it just in time. So they go to the convention in 1980, uh, and Reagan's still kind of sore at Bush. You know, Bush had sort of uh, Bush had called his economic program voodoo economics. He didn't like did that. Baker did Baker coin that one, or was that was no was that, that Bush. was that was that was one of uh, uh, Bush's speechwriters. And Baker was furious when he saw that Bush said it. Baker was back in the campaign headquarters, and he calls up the speechwriter. He calls up Bush. Says, "You can't say that. If you're now, you're not likely to win at this point. So there's no point." in you know, undercutting the guy who's gonna be our nominee and who might put you on the ticket. He was mad about voodoo economics as a, as a phrase. He thought that was too much. It went too far. And he was right. Um, I mean, it- And he it, was right. And, yeah, cast because it, it cast a shadow. It, it, it soured things among the Reagan camp. And by the way, it became a lasting phrase that we all remember today that still is used against Reagan. So, you, you know, you can understand why Reagan's people would still be, uh, uh, you know, uh, bitter about it. But Reagan overcame that. I mean, he his first choice, or at least the first person he dallied with, was President Ford. In this sort of member, people forget this. There was this co-presidency, right? And it, of course, it wasn't going to work. And so Baker had positioned Bush to be the man standing there. If that didn't work out, okay, I'm here. And 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 so Reagan might not have been enthusiastic about Bush. Obviously, there were some there were some hard feelings there. But it, the logic of Bush overcame that, and that's what Baker basically set up. Now. Baker also set himself up by doing so, right? And this is where Barbara Bush was always a little, you know, uh, uh, sore about it. She thought that Baker was, there were times she felt like Baker was out for Baker. Uh, and in a couple of years ago, before she passed away, she gave an interview to uh, Susan Page and did a bi biography of, of Mrs. Bush in which, you know, she references Baker becoming chief of staff saying, well, he was campaigning for chief of staff. Now, that's not really true. He didn't really at that point in time think he was gonna become chief of staff. 
but it shows the sort of the, the friction that, that that is there sometimes because you know who's who's interested is he serving yeah let's talk about that I mean, it seems to me unlikely that jim baker serving as you know the campaign advisor or chief for hw bush would really contemplate becoming reagan's chief of staff more likely he probably contemplated that he would be the chief of staff to the vice president i can't recall whether that was written explicitly in your book that's certainly where my mind went that's the way things normally work you know the right. vice president's team generally are the people that were around the vice president when they were running for office or you know in a previous office um but the other person that was going to be people thought would be chief of staff to, to president reagan was of course ed meese uh mm -hmm. later to become the attorney general and had been his chief of staff to president reagan uh, when he was governor um but there was quickly recognition that that would not work uh, in terms of organizing the Reagan White House with all its complexities. When did Jim Baker pick up on the fact that Ed Meese was not going to get the job? I mean, is that something he was alerted to early on, you know, as the campaigns were engaging and battling each other? Or was that kind of something he quickly moved to fill the void after President Reagan was elected? So the Reagan people brought in Baker for the fall campaign to be the nego uh, negotiator for debates with Carter and John Anderson, who was running as an independent. Uh, but he quickly impressed people. The people he impressed most importantly, of course, were Michael Deaver and Stuart Spencer. And Deaver and Spencer, I mean, Ed Meese had a lot of respect in the Reagan crowd, but not as an organizer, not as a manager. He had been his chief of staff in Sacramento. But the, the line on Meese was that, you know, his briefcases were you know, papers went to die. You know, you would his papers would go into his briefcase and never come out again. And Spencer and Deaver thought the idea of Meese as a White House chief of staff would have been a disaster. And they also thought they needed somebody who knew Washington, right? That Ed was um, uh, ideological keeper of the flame, somebody who could translate Reagan in a very you know powerful way, but not somebody who's going to figure out how Washington worked and make things happen legislatively and everything. So they had their eye on Baker. Baker doesn't know any of this. And the real clue is when Stu Spencer calls him up one day and says, I want to put you on the plane with the candidate. He's like, what are you getting me into? He says, something you'll like, don't worry. He puts them on the plane with Reagan so that Reagan get to get to know him a little bit. So the two of them can see if they connect. And they did. They bonded in these late night flights from campaign stop to campaign stop. So that when election day comes, uh, by this point, Deaver and Spencer have primed the pump and talked to Reagan about how Baker would be a better choice than Meese. And I think it said a lot about Reagan that he would pick Baker. I mean, think about this. I can't imagine another parallel where a, an incoming president would pick a guy who would run not one, but two campaigns against him as his chief of staff. I mean, that says something about Reagan, that he understood what he needed to be successful. And he wasn't going to stand on ceremony. He wasn't going to hold grudges. And he wasn't going to be too ideologically pure not to take a Bush guy and make him his chief of staff and help, hope that he could help translate his agenda into reality. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you made that point because it really did seem like a bit of a team of rivals moment. You know, we referenced before how President Obama uh, selected Hillary Clinton uh, after that competitive race uh, to become his Secretary of State. And yeah, you have not only Jim Baker as the Chief of Staff, but of course, as we just referenced, H.W. Bush as Vice President. I mean, you know, this is the, 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 the rivals you know, of this right. really spirited 80, 80 debate, taking two of the most powerful, 
positions in the White House. Uh, the book kind of presents Reagan as a figure who says, okay, well, I'll let you guys work it out. But I, I think what I hear you saying is that ultimately Reagan knew what was happening and uh, probably realized the value of getting a Jim Baker uh, in the White House Chief of Staff office, which you go to great pains in the book to point out, literally that physical office space uh, matters so much in the inner workings of the White House. No, I think Reagan deserves uh, credit for this. I think Reagan is, knows what he's doing at this point. He knows that he needs somebody like Baker, or at least decide he needs somebody like Baker in order to be successful. And he puts aside any qualms or just, you know, misgivings he might have had about it. Uh, it helps that Nancy Reagan liked Jim Baker. Nancy thought that uh, Jim Baker looked like a chief of staff. He had a good cut. He looked like a guy out of GQ. He was very competent looking, very Confident. In fact, I think that's the picture you use for your book here exactly. is from his time as, as, a, as a chief of staff. Yes. And because ironically, while being secretary of state is a bigger position, being chief of staff in some ways is more important it, it, because it's, it's, he had more power than his friend George Bush did in those four years he was chief of staff. He really helped put the trains on the track that made Reagan a successful president. And Bush was a secondary figure. Now, uh, that didn't mean Bush wasn't important. Obviously, Bush was, but Baker was the one in every meeting helping steer the ship, and it, and it made a difference. I want to go back in a minute to kind of that theme throughout the book of the back and forth and the Baker-Bush relationship and who's ahead in the power and who's behind and who's supporting who, as well as this idea of uh, staffer versus principal, because those things really play a prominent, uh, have a prominent place throughout the book. But let's go back. Uh, to Baker's um, moving into the White House as chief of staff and the way he handles uh, what he knows will be a difficult relationship with Ed Meese. Uh, it's probably the best example and certainly the first most significant example of seeing Jim Baker as power broker par excellence. Tell us about the way he handled getting the job he wanted, understanding what tools he needed to be effective and at the same time, doing it in such a fashion that really attempting to give Ed Meese what Ed Meese wanted and needed. Um, ultimately, it seems based on the way you tell the story, Jim Baker won. But tell us about the memo, which is really just extraordinary. Yeah, it is something. So Reagan says to Baker when he makes him chief of staff, look, make it right with Ed, right? Reagan doesn't want Ed Meese to be upset. He values Ed Meese. He cherishes Ed Meese. He knows he shouldn't be chief of staff, but he says, make it right. With Ed. So Baker sits down with Ed Meese and he, and like a lawyer, I suppose, and they're both lawyers, tries to figure out how do we, uh, how do we make an agreement here, a power sharing agreement in effect that works for both of us. And he puts down a piece of paper and he has a, two columns, Baker and Meese, you know, and we put what each side is, each of them is going to be responsible for. And he gives, you know, Meese uh, the policy councils and including the National Security Council. And he gives and he gives him the title of or suggests the title of counselor to the president, which is a very powerful sounding title. And most importantly, he says, why don't you have cabinet rank? We'll have Ed Meese be a member of the cabinet. And I won't be. You'll be a member of the cabinet. And Baker understood, even though he hadn't really been in Washington all that long, that that didn't matter. Like it was a great thing to give Ed Meese. Ed Meese would like it but had zero impact in terms of who was actually running it because being a member of the cabinet didn't matter if you didn't actually have the tools to be, to move the levers of Washington. And Baker kept those tools for himself. He ran the legislative shop, the press shop, the uh, staff secretary, which I know sounds 
boring, but is really the key to any White House because that's the control of paper to the, to the president, to the Oval Office. And those are the things that matter. Like Ed, Ed Meese can go with all the policies he want. The, if, if Jim Baker isn't getting it through Congress, it doesn't matter. And so Baker keeps the office on the, in the corner, the chief of staff traditionally has, which is a symbol of power. The meetings are held in that office, therefore convened by him. And so while there's this power sharing agreement, he really gets the better of it because he's controlled the real levers of power in any White House. Yeah, we'll go to a broader point. Uh, you as a student of presidential history and kind of power politics uh, underneath it, you know, going into the Reagan White House, there was this view that the presidency was too big for any one person. I mean, this notion mm -hmm. of a co-presidency between uh, Reagan and Ford in, in some respects reflects that outlook. And there were contributions from the Carter administration to make people think that. Uh, and, and also we, we tend to forget that the role of chief of staff wasn't as quite established. Carter didn't really uh, want a chief of staff uh, and presidents before Carter you know, used it in different ways. To what extent did Jim Baker leave a lasting legacy, almost a final exclamation point that there will be a chief of staff. It is essential to the running of the White House and that all of that come after me will look more like me than anyone else. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's a very good point. There hadn't been a successful president uh, really since Eisenhower to this point. And you're right, there was this idea that the presidency was just a machine that chewed people up. Kennedy was killed, LBJ was driven out of office, Nixon driven out of office, Ford defeated, Carter defeated. And it's up to Baker to help Reagan be a successful president, to show that we actually can run the country, that the country can be managed uh, effectively from the White House. And I think that's his lasting legacy. And it's because Reagan empowers, Reagan gives him the, 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 the trust uh, and the capacity to run the White House. He decides he, he's not a micromanager. Reagan doesn't want to get involved in who's on the White House tennis courts and all that. That's all fine for Baker. And Baker understood, and he always said, the most important part of his title, chief of staff, was staff, not chief, right? That you, it, it's very easy as a chief of staff to get the idea that you're kind of a quasi prime minister. And people called him that from time to time. But unlike, say, Haldeman, who let it go to his head, or unlike some others, particularly his successor, Jim Baker's successor, who might have let it go to his head, he understood that you both run the place, but keep a lower profile in order to be successful. If you show up your principal, that's, that's a, that's, you're, you're, you're going to be doomed. We'll talk about Don Regan in, in a second, the successor chief of staff to Jim Baker in, in the Reagan White House. Uh, but Baker still accomplished so much. I mean, I get the point that he was more staff than chief. But the other lasting legacy, and actually you're seeing it play out a little bit today in a quite different way in terms of the chief of staff role right now in Washington, we have the $1.9 trillion uh, COVID relief bill where the uh, Biden chief of staff has been quite kind of, my understanding, reading your articles and others, seminal in getting this through. Um, Baker did that too. I mean, in 1983, he is putting his kind of mark on major legislation uh, with the Social Security Reform Act. Uh, tell us about that and what was extraordinary to me, perhaps somebody, just because I, I spent some time on Capitol Hill and in a, in a different era, the way he did it in a bipartisan fashion, uh, the compromise he was able to realize, the intense personal relationships that drove it, uh, using his residence, you know, uh, yeah. his personal residence as, as a meeting room. 
Uh, give us a little color on how that was accomplished. And then again, a theme in your book, how that also reflects the way uh, things worked in a bygone era. Yeah, it is a bygone era. That part of it is because Congress at that time was, the two parties weren't as homogeneously ideological the way they are today. There were modern Republicans, there were conservative Democrats. It wasn't as, 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 as fixed as it is today, as tribal as it is today. So the first thing he does, of course, is actually get Reagan's tra tax cuts through in 1981 with bipartisan support, with Democrats. Because remember, it's still a Democratic House. Uh, and he works with conservative Democrats, blue dog Democrats, yellow dog Democrats. Um, and he, uh, and that is the, 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 that creates an atmosphere of trust. People know that he's a straight shooter, they can deal with him. So in 1983, when it comes time to figure out how to save social security, he really sits down with Tip O'Neill and his Tip O'Neill's people. And the two of them basically cut a deal. And they say, look, I'm gonna give you something, you're gonna give me something. It sounds simple, it sounds trite. And yet it's so anathema to today's Washington, but he brings these people, he brings the negotiators to his basement, his Fox Hall Road uh, house so that nobody knows them. There aren't press outside. They're not preening for the cameras. It's about how do we actually get something that we can both sides agree on? And he gave up on, on you know, I think on, on, on increasing some of the tax, taxable income. They gave up on the retirement age, you know, blah, blah, blah. Neither side is 100% happy, but that's what a compromise is. Right. And they come out of this with the only lasting bipartisan deal to save Social Security that we've had since then. And we've had Social Security fixes then, since then, but never anything of this consequence with a bipartisan base. It gets to a Democratic House, Republican Senate signed by a Republican president. And of course, that that is what's so different, right? Because the major legislation we've had passed, whether uh, the one that's going through the Congress right now, the last administration with their tax uh, bill, or you know Obamacare, the way you do it now is you just drive your majority, even if it means you lose your majority, because you're yep. not going to get you know a bipartisan deal. You go for the hundred percent, eighty percent, you won't get rewarded for. Um, well, that's exactly right. The problem with that is. It's not sustainable because if, if you know if you have bipartisan buy-in on a major piece of legislation, it tends to survive your administration. If you only have Democrats only or Republicans only, then it's just an incentive for the next party when they come into power to undo what you've done, which is what you know the attack on Obamacare because there was never any Republican buy-in with Obamacare. Now you can say it's the Republicans' fault or the Democrats' fault. I'm not going to parcel blame in this particular setting, but I think that that you can see the consequences of. of party line initiatives as opposed to what Baker and Reagan were able to accomplish back in that era. So I'm going to go Reagan Institute on you on this one here, okay? And and because it really is kind of something that plays out in the book, but not emphasized. So how much of this compromise that Baker uh, accomplished in his time as chief of staff, and then he did it again on taxes uh, as secretary of treasury, uh, was something that was viewed as kind of beyond the pale of, of a Reaganite, or to what extent did this truly reflect something that President Reagan wanted? I mean, there are, you know, President Reagan was famous for saying, you know, don't let, well, he didn't say this exactly, but don't let, you know, perfect be the enemy of, of, of good, right? You know, take 80%. Um, what's your view on it? Was this Jim Baker getting around President Reagan or the Reaganites, or was this truly a reflection of what the president wanted his chief of staff to do, certainly gave him cover for it. Yeah, yeah. I think, look, you point out rightly that two of the biggest offices in the West Wing at the very start were occupied by 
enemy forces as far as the Reagan camp was concerned, right? The, the, tr the true believers, because you had the chief of staff and the vice president were the ones who would run against him. And there was great suspicion from the start, you know, the Lynn Nofziger uh, and, and um, uh, you know, obviously the Richard Vigories on the outside and all these conservatives who, who said, we're the Reagan part of the Republican party, thought Bush and Baker were the apostates. And Baker, you know, was constantly fighting a rear guard action, uh, uh, you know, inside his own building against those who think he's not sufficiently loyal to Reagan or that he's manipulating Reagan. This whole theme, let Reagan be Reagan, that Jim Watt comes up with, who's the Secretary of the Interior, is really aimed at Baker. You know, the idea that somehow Baker is manipulating Reagan into not being who he truly is. I think that's very uh, underestimating Reagan. I think it suggests, you know, is Jim Baker able to manipulate, uh, you know, uh, no, I, I don't think so. No, I, I know there's Reagan and, is, and I think Reagan wants Baker to do what he does. I think, you know, what Baker says, Reagan told him all the time was I'd rather get 80% of what I want than fly my flag going over the cliff. That he was much more of a pragmatist than people wanted to imagine. Yes, he was conservative. Yes, he had some very core beliefs and some things he would not compromise on. But that broadly speaking, he was willing to get half a loaf in order to get some progress toward the, the end. And I think today's parties, Democrats and Republicans, it's all or nothing. You can't take half a loaf because somehow you sold out if you do that. And it's a, it's a theme throughout the book about governance. You're getting elected not to get reelected, but getting elected to get something done, which also generally complemented getting reelected. Uh, perhaps yeah. this is, is not the same today. One other thing that happens during uh, Baker's time as chief of staff, I wasn't familiar with this, um, was that he doesn't like the staff part, or at least it doesn't meet all of his ambition. And he's thinking about how I can become a principal. And one of the things that plays out throughout these eight years of the Reagan administration that you cover through the lens of Jim Baker is what is essentially is dysfunction within the National Security Council. Uh, so two follow-up points on this. One, I was surprised that Jim Baker wanted to become national security advisor. Uh, and I just assume it was the impulse that he didn't want to be, he wanted to be more of a principal or more of a policy person than political fixer. So I want you to comment on that. Uh, and then kind of more broadly, you don't really blame Baker for dysfunction within the National Security Council. So why does he get off the hook in terms of being this great chief of staff? And not like this sign blame here, but you're giving a, you know, a, a full picture is there a reason why the, the problems with the NSC almost don't uh, become the fault of the chief of staff? Yeah, well, it's, in that era, the National Security Advisor had a more independent portfolio than it does today. I mean, today, the, chief, the National Security Advisor typically reports to the chief of staff. In that era, the National Security Advisor reported to Ed Meese, who was outside of, of Baker's direct control. At another point later, reported directly to Reagan. Uh, Judge Clark, because Judge Clark, William Clark, had a, had a relationship with Reagan and decided he wasn't going to go through anybody. So Reagan never, I mean, Baker never fully established control over the National Security Council. And he viewed it as a source of problems, you know, even from the very beginning. He was suspicious. He was, he was suspicious. He was suspicious. That, that's where some of the more right-wing people were as far as he was concerned. He was concerned about adventurism in Central America. There's a scene where he sits down with Michael Deaver at the very beginning of the administration, and they're sitting so close, the knees are touching and he says to Deaver, he says, your job and mine is to keep us from letting them get us into a war in Central America before this is over. So he had an early, you know, uh, premonition, if you will, of the dangers that Central America could pose to the Reagan presidency. 
Uh, of course, he's gone by the time Iran Contra happens. And uh, Michael Deaver said he's in the treasury when that happens. Treasury, right? right? Not therefore directly part of it. Michael Deaver said, Nancy Reagan said, a number of people said, had Baker been in the White House at that time, that he never would have allowed Iran Contra to have happened. So I think that he had a real uh, concern or worry about the national security apparatus. Why do you want to become national security advisor? I think part of it was that foreign policy was seen as 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 more exalted than you know running a lot of people through the Oval Office and you know haggling with congressmen about you know some appropriations bill or whatever. That there was something bigger about negotiating the world, particularly in the end end days of the Cold War. So he did want to be national security advisor, but his enemies didn't. And he got, that's one of the few times he let himself get outmaneuvered by his enemies. He had convinced Reagan to make him national security advisor, but then didn't go with Reagan down to the situation room to make the announcement with him. And, and, and by not being there, he allowed, you know, he allowed his enemies to suddenly say, what are you talking about? You can't make this guy national security advisor. He doesn't have any experience. He's a leaker. You can't do it. And Reagan comes back to the Oval Office. Yeah, well, I've got some problems with the fellows. Have some problems with this, and that's kiboshes the whole. It's never thing. good when you hear the fellows. You know, you know the something. Fellas, right? <laughs> well, the fellows have a problem with. And so, you know, Reagan doesn't want conflict. He's not. He's a conflict-averse guy, ironically. Even though he is, a, in some ways, seen as a polarizing figure internally, he doesn't really relish conflict. And so, when the two sides are are at war with each other, he tries to stay away from it, and they have to fight it out themselves. Do you think, quote unquote, Baker's enemies were right? Would Baker have been a flawed national security advisor at that time? Um, he didn't have a particular experience, obviously, in foreign policy. But I think one of the things that Baker showed was that, you know, there are two models in Washington. There are those who come with a great deal of background in your areas, big new, Brzezinski, Henry Kissinger, all knew about foreign policy. Um, but, and then there are those who are just super talented, right, who can figure out how to take their skill set to different areas. And that's Baker, right? He didn't know anything. You know, he wouldn't give you a lecture on the history of the Treaty of Westphalia and the, you know, the modern nation state, but he had a sense of how to get things done. And I think he would have figured out how to be national security advisor in a way that would have gotten things done. Well, of course, he doesn't become national security advisor, but then we have one of the great trades of all time in power politics in Washington, yeah. where Don Regan, uh, you know, former CEO of Merrill Lynch, I believe, he's the, is the Treasury Secretary for President Reagan. He wants more action in the White House. And of course, Baker now has been thinking for quite some time, I need to get out of the White House, less staff, more principal. And they bring Reagan this opportunity uh, to switch roles. Um, yeah. And Baker becomes a successful Secretary of the Treasury, in some ways mimicking the career, though he didn't know at the time, of George Schultz. Talk right. about uh, Baker as Secretary of Treasury. And was that probably the right first policy post? Uh, for well, someone with his profile. Yeah, again, somebody who didn't have a particular economic background, he took an economic class at Princeton and didn't do all that well. He barely passed the class. So it wasn't like he was built for being treasury secretary, but he but wasn't he, built. He did, you know, he, he did social security, he did tax reform. Right. Those are big things that a, a treasury secretary would have to be interested in. Absolutely. And he did, he did the Plaza Accords on currency rates across the world. That's kind of geeky sounding, but really important. He was there during Black Monday and helped stabilize uh, the stock market after it had the biggest crash since the Great Depression. Uh, and the tax reform thing is a real masterpiece of Washington. Tax reform, in this case, doesn't mean just cutting taxes, which is kind of easy. Who doesn't want to cut taxes? Tax reform, in this case, meant redoing the whole tax code to make it simpler, fairer, put more of a burden on, on these people, less of a burden on those people, and have the revenues come out the same. That is a remarkable thing. And he did it with 
Republicans and Democrats got enormous, overwhelming votes in the end. That's a stunning accomplishment if you think about it. Work with Dan Rosenkowski, Bob Packwood, people in both parties who had vastly different interests and all those special interests out there who were lobbying as well and somehow manages to get this through. Hasn't happened since. I can't imagine it ever happening again on a big bipartisan basis, but it really, really was a case study in the use of power in Washington. You know, one of the other features of uh, kind of the tools that he employed, talked about working with the press or leaking to the press, his team. By this point where he goes over as Secretary of Treasury, he's developed kind of loyal aides in the White House. We mentioned one before, Bob Zellick, there are others. They go with him to Treasury and they ultimately go with him uh, to the State Department during the administration of George H.W. Bush. Um, how is he, as somebody who builds a team, trust, trusted team? You know, yeah, they, can, you know, yeah, they called the Baker plug-in unit and they would just take <laughs> him you know, and plug him in whatever department he was at. And it was, you're right, Bob Zellick and Dick Darman and Margaret Tutwiler and Janet Mullins and uh, Bob Kimmett, Dennis Ross. And, 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 and it, he had a remarkable team. And I think that it speaks to, of him that he would hire people who were as smart, if not smarter than he was. And a lot of people don't wanna do that in Washington. They feel threatened. It also speaks, I think of him, that these same people who were his most important and trusted advisors to this day remain as loyal to him as they were back then. You know, I've interviewed people who used to work for presidents or cabinet secretaries, you know, after the fact, and they're, they're usually more jaundiced about their former boss. Loyalty not perhaps is not the feature. <laughs> Not the feature. And Baker's case, they all to this day admire him enormously. And it was it was it's something. So we got a little bit of time left. I want to talk about uh, kind of the post Reagan years. But before we leave it, you know, there is this element in terms of your treatment uh, of President Reagan throughout the book. You mentioned, um, you know, this uh, some viewed him as, you know, the Clark Clifford's claim of the amicable dunce. There's a quote in here where he said Baker came to see Reagan as more complex figure than he had assumed not an intellectual by any means, but someone with core values and more common sense than he was given credit for. Um, interested both in Baker's take and your take. So the Baker's take, I would say, <laughs> on, on, on President Reagan, you know, the years after the Reagan presidency, um, you see there were all the, this, this idea of core values is something that he had a lot of uh, um, deeply held beliefs, wrote a lot about them, um, and wanted his administration to steer in that direction. The distinction I make is perhaps he wasn't somebody who, who thought the president should get into the weeds of policy. Uh, that perhaps was Jimmy Carter's flaw, uh, not an asset. Uh, and in some ways, Baker himself is not intellectual. I mean, you just talked about it. Were these two men kind of similar? Uh, what did you learn about Reagan in terms of Reagan's ability both to manage and someone with, you know, Kind of the intellectual ideas in terms of where a party and principle belong relative to other uh, principles. Right. Well, I think that Baker came into the Reagan White House with the view that a lot of establishment Republicans had at the time, which is that I'm really uncertain about this Reagan guy, right? He's an outsider. He was an actor. Maybe, he, you know, this whole, there was a whole theme that he was a warmonger, right? Too harshly conservative. And Baker came to realize to came to a very different impression after working for him. Thought that 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 stereotype that that you know was too simplistic and too uh, cartoonish. And in fact, the real Reagan uh, was a much more serious figure than he was given credit for. That he wasn't in fact a warmonger, quite the opposite. Somebody who actually 
uh, was trying to find a way to peace. He did it in a different way than Democrats might have done, uh, but that he had a you know visceral uh, hatred for nuclear you know weapons, and, and he wanted to get rid of the world. We saw that at Reykjavik, right? Baker, I mean, Reagan turned out to be not the cartoon figure that Reagan turned out not to be the cartoon figure that Baker and a lot of Republicans, much less Democrats, had had of him. And he really respects him. I mean, I think, you know, when he talks about him today, nothing but um, nothing but respect and veneration. And I, and it's I, I thought when we started this project that he might dish on Reagan, you know, he might say, well, in fact, you know, this is what really happened. And I he didn't. I never heard him say one word about Reagan that wasn't uh, respectful. Now, it's true that Reagan wasn't, you know, some sort of a, a deep intellectual. I don't think anybody would argue that he was. That wasn't what he presented himself to be. He didn't imagine himself to be that. He imagined himself to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, his version of an America first, not in the Trumpian kind of crude way, but in a in a patriotic way, a shining city on a hill way, an inspirational way. And that Reagan did something, as you said, to restore the presidency as a viable leadership position at a time that the country had been through Vietnam and Watergate and so many uh, convulsions. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think he, certainly Reagan was not the, the intellectual scholar, but he was someone at, who thought deeply about the presidency and yes. deeply about what a president should do in office and where a president should yes. focus. Um, and, and some of the story that I, my takeaway from reading the book is that bringing in someone like a Jim Baker to run the White House, to take care of you know, the battles that inevitably happen and keep the president above it wasn't a reflection of somebody who is oblivious to how to run the White House, but actually somebody who's quite sophisticated and how to use the different tools and stay above it so he could be the president. My editorial comment, uh, you feel free to disagree. <laughs> no, I think I think that's basically right. Now, there's a consequence to that, right? You know, his, his he did not want to get involved in small things and, and the president needs to marshal his or her time to focus on the big things. And if you're focusing on who's playing on the tennis courts of the, the White House, you're not thinking about how to make the country a better place. So he, he definitely had a better uh, vision of that kind of, uh, that leadership than other presidents have had. The flip side is, of course, if you're too hands off, that means that chaos can roll sure. free beneath you. And that's unfortunately what did happen in his White House. Remember, he had seven national security advisors over time. There was this sort of like factionalized fighting you know, within his White House that he didn't want to have any part of. And, and there were frustrations on the part of his staff from time to time that wished he would kind of come in and settle it, say, stop this. Beaver went to him and basically said, you need to intervene and tell these different factions to stop it because they're hurting you. It just wasn't his nature. He's conflict diverse in that sense, didn't want to do it. But you're right. I think it allowed him to stay uh, above it in a way that resonated with the public, that made him a, you know, the public's president in that sense and not just a manager of Washington. Um we only have a little bit of time left. We got to get to our lightning round and we are still with Jim Baker in the Reagan administration. Of course, his most significant contributions, I think, in American history are, are, are perhaps what happens afterwards. Uh, so we'll just jump. He, he has to leave the Reagan administration to run the Bush, H.W. Bush campaign in 1988. Of course, successfully does it. There's a whole discussion about Jim Baker and how he runs political campaigns, the, the competitor, the tactics involved, we're gonna shelve that. But then he becomes Secretary of State. Um, reading the book, you seem to put Baker up there with Kissinger. Uh, my sense is Schultz belongs there. I don't know what you, you whether you feel that uh, Schultz does or does not. 
but he absolutely has a seminal role in taking what the Reagan administration has done, what George Schultz has done in terms of basically defeating, right, as Margaret Thatcher said, winning the Cold War without firing a shot. But of course, winning isn't enough. You have to get the world to be organized in a, in a functional way uh, post the breakup of the Soviet Union, which Jim Baker, along with H.W. Bush and, and, and Scowcroft, the National Security Advisor, do in a way that I think there's consensus was super successful. Talk to me about um, Baker, his place amongst secretaries of state, and then uh, contrast a bit, because it wasn't in the book, between George Schultz and Jim Baker. Yeah, no, I think George Schultz is right up there. I mean, I think that he's underrated. He doesn't have the, the, the sort of celebrity quality of, 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 of Kissinger or a Baker in that sense. Uh, but Schultz obviously was, I think, the longest serving Secretary of State going back many, many years, clearly managed to figure out how to channel Reagan and they became great partners on the world stage at a time when we needed that, at a time when we made this huge, the world made this huge pivot from confrontation to, uh, you know, a different, uh, to at the end of the Cold War. And that sh that, that's Schultz's legacy. So I take nothing away from Schultz. I would make the, we make the argument that Baker could be seen though as probably the most consequential Secretary of State maybe since Atchison, simply because he, in part because he was there when the world did change. You know, Schultz set it up for him, no question about it. Baker happened to be there when the wall falls. He happened to be there when the Soviet Union collapses. He's there when the Gulf uh, convulses with the you know, invasion of Kuwait. And he, and he handles it. You know, like Baker's not a revolutionary. He's not himself an intellectual right. scholar, as you say. Uh, but he is somebody who harnesses the forces at work around him to channel them to, uh, you know, to a safe landing in effect. And, and it didn't have to end that way. You know, not a lot of empires fall without, you know, enormous violence. And yet it did. The Eastern Europe became free. Uh, the Soviet Union at least, uh, you know, broke up. And the Russia at least had a chance at democracy, even though obviously we, today we know it didn't uh, fulfill it. And he reorganized the world in effect uh, uh, against, uh, you know, a tin pot dictator like Saddam Hussein. We not only fought, not, we not only had the Soviets on our side in that conflict, we had the Syrians literally contributing wow. troops. Imagine that today. So was, was Baker a visionary or an architect of this? No, but he took the, the, the events as they came, figured out how to use them, how to make them work for the American benefit and for the benefit of the world. And in that sense, I think had more consequence to him probably than, than certainly most secretaries did. Yeah, one, one follow up on that, one of the things that at times plagued uh, George H.W. Bush and, and of course, Jim Baker was the quote vision thing, but the story yeah. and the story of his, of his career really says something that, you know, one thing is to articulate a vision. There's another thing to be able to execute within the world uh, and, and, and what's given to you. And that seems to be where uh, Jim Baker, uh, according to your story, excelled uh, above everybody else. Um, if, I want to build If you're going to build a building, you need an architect, you need an engineer, right? Baker wasn't the architect, but he was the engineer. We're going to go to the lightning round, except I have one more question to ask because fascinated me. I remember when it happened, but I'm curious to get your view. Uh, George W. Bush is president. Uh, you have the Iraq war. It's going poorly. Uh, and there's a view that Don Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, who's overseeing the war, uh, it's time for him to leave. And George W. Bush and his own history with Jim Baker, which we can't get into, uh, actually calls Jim Baker and says, you'd be defense secretary. Of course, 
Uh, Jim Baker declines, points his attention to Robert Gates, and the rest is history there. Your view, was there even a hesitation? Maybe I should become defense secretary and be that, you know, kind of historic person to serve as treasury secretary, secretary of state, and secretary of defense? Baker was smart in part by the, the choice of jobs he took. And he didn't take jobs he didn't think he could be successful at. And I think he looked at that and thought there's a, you know, the chances of being successful at that are going to be very small. Now, what he said was, I'm too old. I've already right. done this. I don't want to do it again. What he really meant was, I don't know that I can make this work the way I think it could work. And I think I would be fighting all the time with my good friend, Dick Cheney, who was the vice president at the time, because the two of them didn't agree uh, on Iraq. But he also valued his friendship with Cheney. And he didn't relish the idea of spending the last two years of the Bush 43 administration at constant war uh, with his friend over that. So he decided that wasn't going to be for him. And he, and he didn't uh, he didn't take the job. Interesting. So he, he was good at making enemies, friends, or at least, you know, working with them, but preferred not to make a friend an enemy, at least in that one case. Let's move to the lightning round. Uh, Peter Baker, your favorite book about President Reagan, your favorite Reagan speech or your favorite quote uh, by President Reagan? Give us all three, two or just one. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm biased. My favorite book about uh, Reagan was Lou Cannon's uh, book on his presidency, President Reagan, The Role of a Lifetime. I think Cannon is just unparalleled in his, you know, his mastery of the Reagan uh, 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 life and politics. And I think he, I think he's fair and insightful and, uh, uh, and, and uh, analytical and revelatory in there. So I love that here. <laughs> I do quote him a lot. lot. I, 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 I'm a huge fan of Luke Cannon's, all of his books. My favorite memoir of the time would probably be Peggy Noonan's, of course. Uh, when I saw the revolution, it's just Great. brilliant. She's just fantastic. Uh, favorite speech, I would probably, you know, it's good, probably the tear down this wall speech is so iconic. It's hard not to remember. You know, my wife and I were correspondents for four years in Russia uh, at the beginning of the Putin era. And we were there when Reagan died. And one thing that really struck us was how much Russians cared about Reagan, how much they, they, they appreciated him, that they listened to these speeches as best they could through, you know, or through, read them through Samizdat or they got them through some, you know, Voice of America or something like that. And that these speeches mattered to them. The speeches where he spoke to their aspirations, he spoke to, to the values of freedom mattered to these Soviets back when they were being oppressed. So I think that, you know, we, we wonder sometimes, do speeches really matter? It mattered to them. And we were there in Moscow and that was really impressed us. Uh, to hear them talk about Reagan when he passed away that way. They were, quote, um, you know, I'm partial to the jokes. I love his line, you know, about they say hard work never kill anyone, but I figure why take a chance. And I love it because I, and I, and, and the, I'm not going to take advantage of my opponent's youth and inexperience. I love it because, A, he's able to laugh at himself. Yeah. And so few politicians are able to do that. And B, it's just brilliant because it's disarming, right? It's disarming. It, 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 it attacks the criticism of yourself as a politician head on and makes a joke of it. And so many of our politicians, our presidents are so defensive and right. so, you know, that they can't do that. And it, it worked for Reagan. Like the, the line against Mondale worked. And I interviewed, or I didn't interview, I take it back. Uh, but Mondale said in an oral history, I guess I read, that the instant he said it, he says, you could see my face, I was smiling, but inside I was crying because I, I knew that was the moment <laughs> I had lost I lost the race. And, you know, Reagan knew that better than anybody, that, that, that humor is, a, is an important tool in politics and in life. 
Peter Baker, author with Susan Glasser, the man who ran Washington. Thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to having you and perhaps with Susan back on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you. It was a great conversation.